Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is singer-songwriter Kate Shutt. Her new album is called Telephone Game. From it, this is Take Everything. Take everything, but leave me something. Something I can carry all by myself. Take everything, but leave me something. Something I can use, something I can sell. Stuck deep in my shoulder is a tiny silver pen. On its head is the question Who will weep if I don't weep for him? Take everything but Against my lips Take everything but leave me something Something I can bless Something from my lips My guest is Kate Shutt. Her new album is called Telephone Game, and like her previous recording, No Love Lost, uh, it's part of the Artist Share project, and we'll find out more about what that means and, and why she made that decision. But first, Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's my pleasure. Uh, you have a very interesting background that's that's led up now to these uh, great recordings. And before <laughs> we talk about uh, the two albums I just mentioned, mm. I'm almost positive that sometime between 2001 and 2004, when I was uh, working at a jazz radio station in upstate New York, I received a record of yours. So what, wasn't there one before? Yeah, there was a couple before that. Um, we don't like to talk about them now, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> um, there was, I think, you know, officially there was something like seven records before these ones, but they were all made on the down-low and on the cheap, and generally in the um, in a sort of handmade fashion. Uh, but there was a, there, my first three albums. Technically, were a trilogy, um, and you probably received the third one that was called Broken. That's exactly the one. Yeah. Yeah, and it was sort of songs arranged for solo guitar and voice, and it was everything from Somewhere Over the Rainbow to a version of Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do with It to wasn't there a Stones tune on there? Or something? Yeah, there was a Rolling Stones tune on there. Um, there was some Janet Jackson. You know, sort of really eclectic 
um, combination of standards and and what I would call 80s standards. <laughs> nice. Um, I have this uh, bad habit of taking what are really ultimately great tunes from the 80s and, and stripping everything away from them and playing them sort of in a jazz, I would use, I would use that term kind of loosely, but just reinterpreting them um, in, in a jazz fashion. And uh, so there's a, definitely a few culprits on that record. Well, I, I I get that they're you know sealed in a vault somewhere deep underground now. Yeah, but yeah. But uh, I, I remember really really digging that record. And so mm-hmm. when I first got um, asked what you know to to do uh, this interview that we're doing now, yeah, I said I, I'm sure that I've got a record of Kate's somewhere yeah, yeah. in my house. And uh, so uh, we can leave that was obviously a painful <laughs> subject and, yeah. and move on to brighter times. But I, yeah. I really remember digging that record. So it's yeah, no, it's I not mean, all you know, as dark. Some as, people love that. Some people love that stuff. And I'm actually doing a. Well, it won't be secret as of tomorrow when I blast my mailing list with this, but I've been do- I've been going into a little studio in Guelph where I live in Ontario and recording. I've- I go in twice a month. Um, it's just on my schedule, and I record solo guitar voice arrangements of any tunes I like. So I- I'm kind of I've come full circle back to that that album, and I'm starting to do a whole bunch of tunes. And it's again, it's everything from. 80s covers tunes to standards arranged for voice and guitar to some of my own material just rearranged for a more stripped down sound. Feedback from that record wasn't all terrible. Some people loved it. So, so I still have a shot at my Depeche Mode by Shut cover yeah, CD, you do. right? Actually, I'm taking, I'm definitely taking um, suggestions and uh, requests because you know it's it's harder than you think to drum up those 80s. Uh, nuggets. <laughs> I have there's a there's a person on the CBC in in Canada who just stumbled on my old records as well and totally got into it and did a whole show of Kate Shutt does hits from the from the 80s. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you're not the only one, and I'll put Depeche Mode down on my list. Nice. Sure. Okay. Cool. That's yeah. great. Well, let's uh, let's get serious now. Okay. Enough having fun in this interview. Enough, enough. We yes. got to get down to some jazz. Here. Exactly. Let's <laughs> let's let's talk for real here. So no fun. Um, can we can we delve back even even pastor than the past that we were just talking about yep. and uh, and talk just a little bit about uh, particularly your your first guitar teacher and kind of your early entry in, into the music. Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware slash Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. Um, people always ask me where I'm from, and I say those two cities, those two places, because really Chad's Ford is just over the Pennsylvania line. Um, essentially, I, you know, I went to school in, in Wilmington. My dad went to work in Wilmington. My brother works in Wilmington now. You know, it's, it, it, Wilmington, Delaware is the next closest city, basically, it's 10 minutes down the road. So, um, And I was 10 years old and already studying piano, but all my friends in school, all my, bo- my guy, guy friends in school, in grade school, were starting to take guitar lessons. You know, their parents let them play guitar. And I said, I really wanted to do that, too. So my mom looked around and found this great guy named John Darty, who's a monster guitar player. And, um, you, you know, when you started to study with John Darty, you had to, first of all, you had to have straight A's, and you had to write an essay at age 10 <laughs> that said, answer the question, what is music? Oh, no problem. Yeah, exactly. So I can remember being 10 years old and sitting on the green shag carpet of my parents' living room, um, you know, 
trying to answer the question, what is music? And uh, to this day, you know, I, I don't remember what I what I said there. And unfortunately, I don't have that essay. I'd love to read it. Um, but needless to say, I passed the test, and I got to start, start studying with John. And um, and basically, I continued studying with him through my time at Berkeley up until I was age 27 or 30. Um, because it just so happened that when I went to Harvard, for college, John decided to move his family from Wilmington back up to Boston, where he went to Berkeley as well, and just decided, you know, he wanted a change, wanted a new scene and everything, and so then I just picked up right studying with him again, and if it hadn't been for that, actually, if he hadn't moved to Boston and, uh, and I hadn't continued studying with him through my first two years at Harvard, I probably wouldn't have left Harvard and gone to Berkeley and be talking to you today. What was it about John that made him special? I mean, A, that he's so serious. You know, this wasn't show up at your lesson and play your favorite Grateful Dead tunes. This was, you when you studied with John, you studied what he wanted to study, what he played, and that was jazz and, and bebop and West Montgomery, George Benson, Pat Martino. That's, those were his heroes. Um, and so, you know, I I didn't learn any of those, like, cowboy chords, as everyone calls them, you know, your big open G chords and C chords and D chords, until basically I got to Berkeley, which is sort of semester one in Berkeley guitar, and, you know, they skip over that really quickly because almost everybody plays those. That's how they learn the guitar. I was learning all these weird inversions and stuff way up on the middle and the upper part of the neck of the guitar. I mean, that was what I had studied. Um so he, you. What was great about him was just that you, he was so serious, and that you just really dove right in. You know, there was no, let's sit around and, and play. You know, strum a G chord. Um, so I was playing tunes by Horace Silver and Wes Montgomery, and um, you know, George Benson tunes. And he was a big Jimmy Smith fan, so we'd play a lot of blues in, in kind of the Jimmy Smith organ trio style. Um, and he was utterly dedicated to you as a student um, and a great player I mean somebody who was just drop you know jaw droppingly phenomenal um, and I was lucky in that I was his only girl student at the time and I mean also I was very interested in it so I got a lot of attention f- from him and you know it was just that kind of thing I didn't want to miss it any every week I didn't want to miss my Saturday lesson and had you had any exposure before you started studying with John to the kind of music that he was teaching you? Not at all. I mean, my folks were into well, music is in my family and in my house and stuff like that, but it was not um, that particular brand of jazz. Uh, it was more Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook. Um, and, I mean, I knew all the words to that at that, 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 that age because we had the, the full two-record two Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook, and we would play that. My parents would play that incessantly, and, um, you know, the Gershwin songbooks, and that kind of music, because that was what my grandmother, who was a great grandmother on my father's side, was a wonderful pianist, and that was the music of her. That was the music she played, so that was the music he grew up listening to, my father, and hence the music that he played. Um, so, no, prior to meeting John, I was, and I'm, I don't know if you know, but I'm the youngest of, two, of three and my two older siblings are boys, so I have two older brothers. And as the youngest girl, you really don't get much say in a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I never got a say in the music that was being played, you know, if my brothers were listening to music. So that they were listening to things like The Stones, The Dead, Janis um, Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and that would come along for me, you know, in the next year or two. But I never got to choose anything. I mean, there were a few things that I was listening to on my own, but it wasn't West Montgomery. I can tell you that. It was more like Tina Turner, um, you know, because that was 1985. So that was that was that was basically the first album I remember buying on my own. I shouldn't be saying this. I must not let you know. My room's on the first floor. There's an open window. I don't wanna trouble you. You don't have to see it through. But if you're free, then I'm free. And if you're not, well, that's cool. So, as you mentioned, like most singers and songwriters and jazz musicians, you went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> I was in high school, and um, I was a major, I was a very serious athlete in high school, um, in addition to still playing music and doing stuff like that, but pretty serious athlete and had good grades and decided to to go for it. I didn't know, you know, I looked a lot of places, but decided to throw my hat in the ring. And lo and behold, <laughs> I got in, and thankfully at that time you could still get in early. I got in early, which was, for me, just great, because then I was done thinking about those kinds of things. Um, and pretty excited, you know, didn't didn't know anybody who went there, didn't have any friends older than me that were there or anything, but pretty excited about going to Cambridge and spending the next four years there. And what were you planning to study? Um, I was unsure when I went there. I mean, I was definitely studying women's ice hockey and women's lacrosse because <laughs> when you play, uh, when you go to a Division One NC2A school uh, as a as an athlete, that's pretty much your life. I mean, you know, when you're competing at that level, you practice every day for two or three hours, and you're lifting weights and training in addition to that. Um, so you basically have a choice as to whether or not you're going to do your work and be an athlete or socialize and be an athlete because you can't do all three. So I knew I was going to, I'm sort of more of the former, I was going to do my homework and, and be an athlete, but I didn't know, I was on the fence between English literature and um, I studied Chinese as my language in high school, so I was four years into studying Chinese already and Harvard has a really top-notch East Asian Studies program. Your high school had a Chinese language program? Yeah, which was really rare and why I took it. Um, 
starting freshman year. And, in fact, the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, I lived in Beijing and studied at Beijing University. So I was, you know, I was pretty down, far down the road of that language. And Harvard, like I said, had a great East Asian studies program. But I was on the fence. I didn't know whether, you know, which, which direction I would go. And Harvard makes you choose in your freshman year what your major is going to be, which is a little bit earlier than most other places. So I don't know, you know, the writing thing really just was pulling on me, and I knew I'd continue with my Chinese language. I could still take language classes, but I didn't necessarily feel tugged to to study the culture as much. So I opted for English literature. And then when you reconnected with John, your guitar teacher, that was when you decided to make the jump across the river and... Yeah, essentially he moved up there that same fall, and I just started studying with him again once a week. I'd take the tea over to his house in Brookline, and we'd play for, we'd have a lesson for like two or three hours, and I did that every week, and, you know, we were fitted in when I was traveling for hockey or lacrosse. We'd fit it in during the week, and um, and about my second year at Harvard, um, I started realizing just how much time I was putting into sports. You know, you sort of do this thing that you've been doing all your life when you're competing at that level. And then I kind of stepped back and was like, whoa, I'm spending upwards of six hours a day playing sports in addition to going to class and everything and doing my homework. You know, what if I spent six hours a day on music? Whoa, you know, what would what would happen then? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that question kind of blew my mind and I couldn't get it out of my head and that's when I said, oh, you know, I think I really want to pursue this a little more seriously than I have, at least at least so that I have the, uh, the option, you know, to say yes or no, I want to do that, or no, I don't. And I never, I felt like I never wanted to get to the point and say, and regret not, not spending that much time on my music. Because um, I'd always played in bands through, through, through grade school and high school, and I was always doing stuff in music, just not seriously. So that's when I leaned over to him one day at a lesson and was like, do you think you could take me across the river and give me a tour of Berkeley? Basically, we just kept it on the down low because <laughs> we didn't want my parents to find out. I was just going to ask that question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can imagine. the. Um, I think I heard the phone hit the floor <laughs> <laughs> when I said, I think I'd like to take time off from Harvard to go over to Berkeley College of Music. There was a sort of a stunned silence on the other end of the line. Um, but I, what I did was I rigged it. I rigged it so it wouldn't be so, ter- so, so shocking. What I did was I finished my sophomore year at Harvard. In, Harvard finishes around late May. And Berkeley starts up in, their summer program starts up in late May. So I just basically took my last exam at Harvard on the same day I started my first day of classes at Berkeley. Wow. Um, and just went straight. I said, listen, I'll go to, I'll go to Berkeley for the summer and the fall and the spring and then I'll come back to Harvard and pick right up where I left off and in in NC2A sports you can have an extra year to finish your playing your sports so I wouldn't really lose an eligibility of sports and you know I've worked it all out so it would, so it came in a nice package for them <laughs> and as it turned out once you started studying music was that pretty yeah. much it yeah I mean I just got there and I was totally and completely underwater i mean because it's what it is it's berkeley and you know there's people that have been playing music since for as long as i was playing ice hockey you know (laughs) they were doing that all their life and i wasn't so i had a lot of catching up to do um 
I am not ashamed to say I was really, really behind everybody, obviously. But, yeah, I kind of got there, and I was like, wow, you know, oh, this is what it's like, getting, being able to do music 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and just really felt scared and, and overworked, but also at home. So I stayed there summer, fall, spring, and then I stayed another summer, fall, and spring. When it was time for me to go back to Harvard, I had a heart-to-heart with them and said, I really don't want to leave. I don't think I can. You know, I've made so much progress. I worked, I worked incessantly to catch up, to try and catch up, and I just didn't feel like I could leave yet. So they allowed me to stay where I stayed for another three semesters at Berkeley, and then finally in, in uh, sort of after six semesters there, I was a little burnt out by that time. And they, my parents just were like, well, you really need to finish something. We don't care whether it's Berkeley or Harvard at this point, but please get a piece of paper from one of these institutions. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided that I had been at Harvard, I mean, I had been at Berkeley for so long, and I, you know, I was always a person who did a lot of things, and and was time for me to exercise the other part of my brain that I'd put away for six semesters. So I decided to take to you know leave Berkeley and go back to Harvard, and that was a great decision. I mean, I played one more season of ice hockey, and I couldn't, I didn't play lacrosse. I can't remember why. Um, no, I did, I did. I played one more season of both sports, and then I, then my eligibility was over, um, essentially. But I had two more years to do at Harvard, and so I finally had a year at Harvard where I didn't, I wasn't playing sports, which was like what the other half lives lives like right. you know what your what college is supposed to be like only that i was a couple of years older at this point and really appreciated it um and now I, I always tell people now if they ask my opinion you know should i take some time off for college i think it's the best i mean i didn't really take time off per se but i took time away from that institution and particularly that one it made me appreciate it even more it was a it was a great it was a great decision for sure. Yeah, it sounds like it. I have brought an invitation. Let's do something, let's go somewhere. Open your mouth, cross your arms, go on. Act like you just just don't care. So in 2004, you moved to uh, Guelph, yes, in Guelph. addition to having an awesome jazz it. festival. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, can you talk about how, of all places in the world, you, you chose <laughs> Guelph? Although I think, in some ways, the answer is pretty obvious. But yeah, um, I mean, I was 
playing ice hockey at Harvard at that level. We had a great ice hockey team. We had, of course, um, a number of Canadians on the team. And Canadians I play had, hockey? Excuse me? Canadians play hockey? Canadians play hockey, yep. Huh. It's, uh, on, you know, it's, it's a shocker, but they do. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. Um, and we have a couple, we had a couple girls on my team, and I was sort of getting ready to leave Boston. I had spent a couple of years there after I'd finished Harvard, um, going back to Berkeley, taking some, some classes in the summertime, you know, a couple semesters worth of classes, and playing around and just generally getting my act together as a musician and uh, was looking forward, I was getting ready to leave, just felt like it was time to go somewhere else and really ready to move to Manhattan. I mean, you know, about to go down there and find an apartment and do that move. And luckily for me, some Harvard hockey teammate um, intervened and said, I really think, she's Canadian, she said, I really think you should go check out the Canadian music scene. And I was like, what Canadian music scene are you talking about? <laughs> In typical American fashion. Um, I've already heard Russian Brian Adams. What else yeah, is there? Exactly. And she said, no, no, I really think, you know, there's a lot going on up there that no one knows about. I really think you should just, you owe it to yourself to go out and go up there and check it out. So I said, sure, you know, no skin off my back. I'll go up for a weekend, check it out. So I drove up to Toronto. I stayed up there for the weekend, four days, you know, a long weekend. And lo and behold, she was right that there was so much going on in the city of Toronto, and the musicians that you met were totally different than any musicians I ever met anywhere. They were, it's a very collaborative scene up there, and so when you meet people, they are just immediately like, oh, you know, you're a musician? Great, come on down, let's play. There's not, certainly coming from a place like Boston, which is very, very divided, very academic, first of all, the whole scene and the whole city. And Secondly, it's a it's a very divided along genre lines. You know, the hip hoppers only do hip hop with other hip hoppers. The jazzers only want to play Donnelly at quarter nil equals three thousand, and <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff. And and that's really how it is. And and that was that was my experience of it. And I was never that way. You know, I I was I played in the classic rock band when I was eleven. You know, I got into the singer-songwriter stuff, and Ricky Lee Jones, and Tina Turner, you know, I had all these influences. So I was never that way, and I, in Canada, it's just, it's like, it's not what genre do you play, it's, it's oh, do you play? And then everybody just collaborates from there. It was so refreshing, and, and I just was like, I think there's something going on up here that nobody else knows about. So I came back down, and I started applying for a work permit, which is a big, giant application, to the Canadian government and did that and lo and behold again I got it which was a real shocker <laughs> they gave it to me and so I moved up and I I moved to the little town of Guelph because that's where my friend's parents were and they you know it was some friendly friends that I could crash with when I got there and it turns out it's it, Guelph is the Austin Texas of Canada it's like this little artistic community where everybody is an artist of some variety I mean literally there's not a person that you meet that is not either a painter, a sculptor, a potter, a musician, uh, or one of, you know, or two of those things. And it has this huge live music scene, great little club scene, and everybody supports everybody else. I mean, you go out to see music every weekend because that's what you do. That's expected of you as a community member. So, you know, it's about 40 minutes from downtown Toronto, so it's comfortable to live there. You can drive in, be in the city, do your work 
you know, do sessions and stuff in the city when you need to be, but then not live in the city when you don't when you don't need to be there. Sounds great. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm sold. Yeah, I know. I mean, and then of course, subsequently, the the, the ending of the story is that in 2006 or five, whatever, the Arcade Fire and Leslie Feist and the Broken Social Scene, these big Canadian bands, and you know, Leslie Feist just blew up, essentially, on the world scene. And everybody started being like, oh, this Canadian music scene is so hot, you know? <laughs> um, and I, all my musician friends were like, can we can we climb in the back of your car and come across the border with you? Um so now everybody knows how great the Canadian music scene is. And there, in fact, on the, in the New York Times did a huge article in one of its Sunday magazines with talking about this particular phenomenon of ca- ca- the Canadian music scene and, and this phenomenon of these big, large collective bands like the Arcade Fire and the Broken Social Scene that have like 20 members in them and why that is that that happens in Canada. And so now so, you're smuggling American musicians now I'm across the border. American musicians up to Canada. That's, That's great. <laughs> that's great. So we'll just we'll change your name on the yeah, on right. the recording. Exactly. So Big it, brother. That's exactly now right. They know. Yeah, and I'm sure if they're going to listen to anything, this <laughs> is the show. This. this is the show they're going to be listening <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, totally. In uh in 2007 you released what we will call your debut album No yep. Love Lost and uh it, it was an artist artist share project, uh, something mm-hmm. I always have a hard time saying, and sure. uh I've interviewed many folks who decided to go that route and wanted to ask why uh, why you did. Well, um, actually, the the true story is that that was that album was done, finished in the can, and um, I had made that album in Guelph. Oh, no and, kidding! Okay. Yeah, and I had and I was sort of sitting on it and shopping around and wondering what to do with it, and twiddling my thumbs as one does these day, this day and age. Uh, you know, showing it to a few people here and there. And I ran into Brian Camelio um, at a conference and basically put it in his hand to sh- make a long story short. And he listened to the first track, whipped his earphones off after eight seconds or something and said, we got to talk. <laughs> um, I was like, okay. And so uh, he loved the album, loved the whole vibe of it and said, I really I want to put this out. Um, you know, but we don't really put things like this out because it's already done, and our whole thing is about the creation of new material. So you need to make, you need to start writing a new material, a new album right now. <laughs> and I had just finished this one, so I said, "Great!" And I was familiar with the artist share model because I actually was heard about it way in the beginning. I mean, I, I told, I've told Brian that I might have been one of the first people to sign up for his Jim Hall project, the very first project he did. I read about it in Downbeat or something when I was at Berkeley, and I thought, yeah, this is for me. This is the coolest thing ever. I do want to know how Jim Hall warms up for a gig, you know? And we should mention that uh, Artist Share kind of gives people at various subscription levels access to more than just the music. They can get everything from sheet music to interviews to yeah, uh, transcripts. Yeah, it's a whole kind of behind exactly behind the behind the scenes look. Yeah, and it's basically like a rat, if you're a if you're a fan of somebody, it's your it's it's like the access you've always wanted to that that musician or that artist. It's like finding out all the. You know, how they warm up for a show, how they, in the case of Jim Hall, you know, how they, how he, how he approaches soloing over some tune like Stella by Starlight or, you know, glimpses into his, his process, essentially. So I was familiar with it, had been a part of that Jim Hall pro- 
that Jim Hall project um, and a couple of other projects. And so he said, yeah, I'd love to put this out, but no, it doesn't really, you know, we don't really put out albums that are already done, so you need to start working on a new album right away. So um, I said, sure. And, uh, you know, I just, I've always, I think his mo- he was way ahead of the curve and really respected him, and it was a huge, it was a huge honor to be on that label, too, because of the musicians that were on that label. Of course, Jim Hall and Maria Schneider and, you know, Chris Potter and people whose music I just absolutely loved, Donnie McCaslin. So that's basically what happened, is that I started working on a new album right away, and what people did was they, I, I basically put together a lot of the behind the scenes of the making of No Love Lost, so that people, would, when they signed up for the project, they would get all that information as well, as the new stuff. I know you really want me What do you want me for? I know you really want me But what could you want me for? If spring comes now Please forgive me If spring comes now But why? So early It's Do what you're told Now Or never But I am meant For Darker Weather And then the uh, the the kind of the beginning of what became Telephone Game mm-hmm. was a, a collaborative process in a way that uh, I think even pushed the boundary some on artist share. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Sure. Um, so Brian and I were talking about making a new album, and we came up with this idea of basically, um, you know, allowing fans to influence or to try to influence my songwriting. Um, you know, first of all, just for your, for the listeners, you know, there's not too many songwriters, quote-unquote, on the Artist Share label. It's mostly jazzers, so instrumental music. There's, I think there might be only one other person who does music with lyrics on the label. So he said, you know, it would be a really cool idea to see if, you know, just open it up for your fans to influence your songwriting. And so essentially what we did was we came up with this idea that... Um, People could send in their, they could send in basically anything they wanted to send in, but we, we geared it toward love stories or love, love stories. And it could be uh, stories about love of a city, love of a street, love of another person, love of your grandmother, love of your dog, love of your, you know, country, whatever you wanted, whatever. Um, and you could submit these stories via uh, email you could submit them anonymously if you wanted. You could submit them uh, as a voicemail. You could submit them as artwork. I got a couple submissions that were just paintings. Um, 
you could submit them as letters. So we sort of opened up the whole, every kind of way you could get in touch with Kate Shot. We, we established it so that people wouldn't have any, you know, boundary to, to getting in, involved. Um, and then we just, and then what we said was that I would respond to everything that came, came in. Um, and indeed I did. And this was totally incredible. Now, I have to say right now that I can't point to a specific letter that someone sent me that spawned or, you know, brought forth a particular song. Like there was not, there was never a one-to-one correlation, if you catch my drift. Um, Sure. But what I did do was think and talk with my um, fans. So what I would do is respond to each entry and I would do that via a podcast like we're doing right now or a, a blog entry or a video or a news, you know, a news update or something. And I would talk pretty specifically about the things, you know, specifically without giving away who it was or something. Because a lot of the, the thing that was so amazing is how much people shared with me. I mean, it was very intimate, very intimate, racy, some of them even. Um, which I didn't expect at all, of course. I was just, you know, thinking people were going to send me their little love stories and I get these total racy entries, you know. So I would respond to everyone, and, and through that process of picking out what to talk about and stuff, you talk, I, I, I would talk about songwriting and how, how I go about songwriting, what makes a good song, and the difference between, you know, I would pick something good out of a line from something that someone had written me I'd say, you know, this is a beautiful description of of the funeral in Provincetown that this person int- attended. And, oh, that reminds me of this Leonard Cohen song. And then I'd reference that Leonard Cohen song and have, have a little riff on why, what made that Leonard Cohen song so great and, and that particular line so great. So it's sort, sort of like thinking critically about songwriting never hurts a songwriter. Sure, yeah. So, you know, unfortunately I didn't get... Unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, you know, it just happened how it happened. And I can't say there's a particular thing that someone sent in that, that caused this particular song, but that process of talking about songwriting and talking about my process of songwriting um, definitely influenced that group of songs that appear on Telephone Game. And the band on Telephone Game is pretty ridiculous, too. We <laughs> talk about who they are? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a ridiculous band. It's essentially a dream band. So Terry Lynn Carrington, first and foremost, and I had worked with Terry Lynn on a project that I had produced um, just prior to this one, to the telephone game. So in between No Love Lost and the telephone game, I produced, I wrote all the music and arranged and produced an album that's a ridiculous hip-hop album. Is that Coco's? It's called Coco Bonaparte. Right. It's um, it's just a really amazing album. It's not out anywhere yet. Um, We don't know if it'll ever see the light of day, but it's a live band doing really amazing hip-hop. And I am, I am holding it in my hand. Are you? So oh, my gosh. You're like one of the only people in the world who has that. Maybe we'll even sneak a track somehow. Yeah, you can. You, can have, you have my permission so. to sneak a track on there. It's right. just totally awesome. It's uh, a really cool project. So anyway, I had hired Terry for that project because I wanted to put together a ridiculous live hip-hop band, and she was top on my list. So we worked together during that project and had a great time. And there was just no doubt in my mind that she was going to do the telephone game because she's, for, I mean, she's obviously a phenomenal player, but one thing about her that I don't know if the general public knows is that she has a deep, deep knowledge of songwriters and, and, and 
you know, singer-songwriters. I mean, she was referencing Emmylou Harris and Ricky Lee Jones in the same way that she can reference, you know, the Herbie Wayne shorter stuff. Um, so I knew she was going to be involved. A little bit of learning. It's a lot of danger, dear. Step on the heels of my life. A little bit of learning. will taste good, though it tastes of sweat from the neck of my brother and sister who hold the sky high with arm and wood. To me the stars feel like splinters. I assume the sun will rise tomorrow, and the moon at night sun's light will borrow. Yes, I assume the trumpet blast and battle cry is a children's game. Why? I assume I will live another day, the world's at war, yeah, but it's far away. What if I'm wrong when I win the symbols I don't so I'll feel this My body is deft and strong That's right. My mouth can talk the bright talk Slings and rocks That's right. But my spirit's not been taught to walk Cold isn't it the light Cold isn't it the day Just as much the night Do I talk to myself? Is there anybody else? Or do I? Then I went out on a limb I needed a piano player And I'm a huge fan And always have been Since he came on the scene Of Oren Evans But I had never crossed paths with him Or anything But I just in this day and age, you know, you can do that. You can just send him an email through MySpace and <laughs> said, you don't know who I am. You have no reason to know who I am. I'm a nobody, basically. But I love your playing, and I've always loved it. And I've transcribed a bunch of your tunes, and I think I have this hunch that you would do, this would be a perfect project for you. And he wrote me back and said, I'm in. You know, it sounds amazing. Totally. So... I had those two, and then I needed a, a bass player who was closer to home because those guys are so busy that I really couldn't rehearse with them or anything. So I needed at least one member of my band who was close to home. So I got um, a great, fantastic Canadian player named Mark Rogers um, who plays both upright and electric, which I needed as well because some of these tunes were jazzy and some of them were more sort of rock pop. He plays for Holly Cole now and, and stuff like that, so I knew he could hang. And then um, who did I fill it out with? Oh, my dear friend Dwayne Andrews, who played on No Love Lost. Um, and I just loved, there's something about Dwayne's acoustic guitar work. He's a gypsy jazz, Django Reinhardt kind of guy. There's something about his guitar and my electric that works really well together. And he's, a sweet, he's the sweetest soul on the earth because he comes from St. John's, Newfoundland. <laughs> and I knew he would bring a special certain kind of vibe to the to the thing. So that was it, basically. And then I supplemented it with some ridiculous players, of course. Um, John Ellis, who I had worked with on the Coco Bonaparte album, um, I had him do the horn arrangements, and we have a, a great relationship. Um, just too super trusting. I basically just let him do what he wants. <laughs> and it always sounds great. Um, and then, you know, produce the tracks, essentially, for for him when we go in to record. Um, and then and he brought people like Alan Ferber on board to play trombone and 
Shane Ensley on trumpet and uh, Gregoire Murray on harmonica, uh, which is a dream come true because I just absolutely love, I've always loved Gregoire's playing. For the uh, background vocalists, I used, went back to the alma mater and snagged a few players or singers from the Harvard Gospel Choir, Kumba, which is a huge gospel choir at Harvard. Anybody can be in it. Um, I wasn't in it because I was always playing sports, but if I hadn't been playing sports, I would have been in it. Um, but grabbed two, three, three vocalists from, from there, the director, um, Sheldon Reed, and then Paris Woods and uh, Candace jo- Joseph. Well, it all sounds very exciting. Uh, the The record is Telephone Game. The artist is Kate Shutt. And, Kate, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. You too, Jason. It's my, my pleasure, and it's great talking to you. And I'm uh, really, really, I've read some of your interviews online, and I'm totally honored to be talking to you. You're a book I'm reading. Pages falling out. Mouth of someone else, take your red perfect mouth. It's interesting times, it's every man for himself. It's take what you can carry and cast away. been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at TheJazzSession.com, or if you're on Facebook, there's also a group there for the Jazz Session. You can just search for the Jazz Session and it will pop right up. I give away music using the Facebook group, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet. Check out their new album, Serious Respect, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session's logo. Thanks so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. 
Thank you for listening. Bye.